Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. This is episode 94. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. And before we start this episode, I just want to talk a little bit about the situation that the world is in right now and the difficulty that everybody is going through. And what I wanted to do to help and do my part is to create messages of hope for anyone out there who is having a difficult time through this pandemic that we're all experiencing. So if you would like to share your message of hope, you could be a poem, it could be a quote from a book, it could be the story of witnessing a kind act. You can go to the addictedmind.com forward slash hope and record a little bit of audio so that other people can hear that message of hope during this difficult time especially when people are struggling with addiction and getting help and it's making it even harder to get that support and we all need it at this time and we all need to stay connected so if you feel called to do that and would like to do that please think about going to the addicted mind podcast and sharing your message i think people need to hear that there is hope and that we will get through this together. All right. Thank you for listening to that. So our guest today is Carter Stout, and he is the author of a great book that I just finished before we did the interview called Lost in Ghost Town, a memoir of addiction, redemption, and hope in unlikely places. It's his personal story of his journey through addiction 
starting from a family of privilege all the way to being homeless in the streets of Venice. It is quite a harrowing story, but filled with a lot of hope. And I was just really happy to be able to interview him on the podcast and get a little bit of his personal take on writing the book and how he did it and what it meant to him and how he thinks about addiction and recovery. So I definitely hope that you all enjoy it and get a lot out of this episode. And don't forget, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please go to iTunes and leave a five-star review. That really does help us get a lot of exposure. And if you're also enjoying it, please think about sharing it with a friend. That's great too. And don't forget about our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Carter Stout, and he is the author of an awesome book called Lost in Ghost Town. Carter, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, how are you doing? So good to be here. My name is Carter Stout, and uh, I'm on the Addicted Mind podcast. That's right. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you so much. So tell me a little bit. I, uh, as we were talking a little bit earlier, I just finished your book, Lost in Ghost Town, and uh, it is a great read. And I got it on Audible and actually listened to it. And it's so well read as well. I know. I I feel really fortunate. The um... The person who read it was just fantastic. So uh, it really uh, gets the the tone right and the beats right, and so I'm I'm very grateful. Yeah, it, it is. It was it was great to listen to. So let's just jump in and and talk a little bit about your book and and your story. Sure. So I grew up down in Washington D.C. in Georgetown, and uh, had a privileged background. Uh, My parents were business folks and I lived in a big house and pretty much had everything that a child would ever need besides the love and attention that, of course, we all hope for as children. And so I felt, I never really felt like I was uh, someone who was had a lot of value. Uh, my father was working all the time and my mother was an alcoholic. And so I was pretty much on my own. And that led to a lot of feelings of disillusionment, low self-esteem. And from a very early age, I had an older brother who introduced me to alcohol and cigarettes and then to other substances. When my parents got divorced, I think I was about 11, and there was, it was so chaotic in my house, and it was so unhappy in my house, and there was such this sense of the disintegration of this family that I was a part of, that I began to experiment with eating disorders. And um, 
I became anorexic and I also became bulimic, which for a young boy or an adolescent um, at that time was very rare. And of course, nobody knew what to do about it. And that was really the way that I dealt with the pain of what was happening in my life. And to a large degree, that was my first real experience with addiction because it was a food addiction. Those addictions led me to, in my teen years, experimenting with drugs and alcohol. And by my 20s, when I was living in New York, uh, is when I first started cocaine, started doing cocaine. And uh, that was something that was prevalent. It was around. I had a lot of friends that were in entertainment. I lived downtown. And it just seemed to be everywhere. And of course, my appetite for it grew. And I began to really isolate myself from the group and started doing it by myself. And I realized that I had a problem. And I thought, if I move to Los Angeles, I am really going to be able to to take this on and, and get myself back on track because LA has beaches and people go on hikes and they do yoga and they eat macrobiotic food. At least that was the myth that I told myself. And um, so I ended up coming out here and of course the addiction got worse. And eventually when I was really at my lowest point and I had almost lost everything, I ended up in Venice, California. And this is really the what the book focuses on is my time in Venice. That's the present tense of the book, Lost in Ghost Town. And at that time, I had lost really all of my friends. My family wasn't speaking to me. I was being evicted from this small little efficiency I had that I couldn't afford. I didn't have a bank account. I didn't have a computer and I didn't have a phone. But the one thing that I did have was a car. And it was an old Ford Taurus sedan. And because of that car, I got introduced to a drug dealer in a part of Venice uh, called the Oakwood neighborhood, which was largely African-American. And I didn't realize when I moved to Venice, but this Oakwood neighborhood, the neighborhood was the epicenter of crack cocaine on the west side of Los Angeles. It was the epicenter of the, of the drug activity. And uh, so I wandered in and, and I met this drug dealer named Flynn who needed a driver. And we quickly became friends and I began driving him around as he did his deliveries. And he introduced me to this world, sort of this underbelly of drugs and gangs. And, you know, I was a, a white guy in a very precarious uh, neighborhood. And, and Flynn well, became my close friend. He was really not like a typical drug dealer. He was book smart. He was self-educated. He was spiritual. He was kind and generous. He was moral. And uh, so the two of us from you know, very different backgrounds, uh, different races, different socioeconomic statuses, forged this unlikely friendship. And that's really what the book talks about a lot and focuses on, is this friendship that we had. And as we're delivering drugs to all sorts of different people on the West Side and Ultimately, what happens is that he and his grandmother, Beatrice, who becomes a, a mother figure to me, invite me to stay in their home and really, for the first time in my life, showed me the love and acceptance and care that I had been missing from my own family. And it was really this, this care that they, they gave to me that propelled me 
to want to take care of myself again and get sober. Right. I, I, I really got that, that part of it, that, that missing parental figure in your life that this other family provided. I mean, Lost in Ghost Town, it's, it's an incredible story. It's a harrowing story of, of your downfall and, and going into, into addiction. One of the things I really liked about your book is that you also juxtapose that with your childhood and slowly put these pieces together of how your own childhood, in a way, what I make up, fed that that addictive process and started that process out. Yes, very much so. The uh, the way the book is structured is that, as I said, the the present tense of the book takes place in two thousand and three in Venice in the neighborhood called Ghost Town. And then every other chapter takes a look at my childhood and my adolescence and my young adulthood. And it really tells the story of how I arrived in Venice. So there's a chapter when I'm seven and uh, it talks about me and my brother and the friendship that we have. And we're running away from home and we go and we hide under a bridge in Georgetown in the afternoon and I'm seven and my brother is nine and we have stolen some beer and cigarettes from our family home and drink and smoke underneath this bridge. And then of course get scared because it gets dark and it starts to rain. And so we go home, but we, uh, we started very early. Um, There was really no parental supervision in my house and we pretty much could do whatever we want. And I had an older brother who, is uh, a heroic figure to me in my life, but he also probably wasn't the best influence on me. Right, right, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, another chapter in my childhood at age nine and 10, the two of us start hanging around this uh, older boy in our neighborhood who has a tree house, and we go buy some pot from a local head shop in Georgetown. And in, in the 70s, there were these head shops everywhere, and you could just stroll in and one of the proprietors of these places sold us a dime bag of weed and we smoked it. And so that was kind of how my life was. It was unsupervised. It was reckless. And uh, I think I was striving to find an identity. I was striving to fit in in some way. Yeah. I was thinking as, as I was reading, reading this and, and picturing uh, this boy who really in a way had everything right. But felt uh, lost and and alone and less than and a lot of uh, of that underlying shame yes that we see so much with addiction yeah and this boy trying to find this identity in it or yeah like you said an identity or, or some semblance of worth feeling so worthless yeah, it's, it's uh, as you said before, it's, it's not an uncommon story that you hear with people, regardless of how they grew up, whether they grew up in an affluent background or they grew up in poverty. There's a real sense uh, among many addicts that, uh, that they weren't, weren't valuable, the message that they internalized and the beliefs they internalized from the primary caregivers, from their mother and father and older siblings was that they were expendable. And that's really how I felt. Right. Not, not enough. Not, not really valuable. Not enough. Yeah. Yeah. You really capture that and you, and you, you feel for this, this kid who 
it's just it's struggling to to find that value and how it just keeps leading them down this path where the drugs come in and take that pain away yes while, or at least in those moments you you feel valuable and for you to the point where you know you're in psychosis actually having voices hearing voices talking to your your past um relatives ancestors yeah your ancestors, which I which I thought was really powerful as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting part of the book. I think uh, when I did cocaine, I would hear my ancestors talking to me. I heard my grandmother and various other people of, from my lineage, and it was real to me when it was happening. And you know, one could say it was cocaine psychosis, and somebody with a different perspective might say that. The, the drugs opened up some sort of doorway into another realm. Sure, yeah, and um, yeah, definitely. You know, there there are many. I you know, I wouldn't advocate doing cocaine to try and have that experience. Certainly, because for me, it was very frightening. It was uh, I didn't really understand what was happening, but uh, it certainly was a part of my journey. And the ancestors ultimately become, my grandmother ultimately becomes a figure for me that I rely on to sort of guide me. And when I am, you know, when I have uh, gotten high, she appears and shows up and, and really tries to take care of me and steer me in the right, in the right direction. Right. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, she was a clairvoyant in her life. Uh, She, and I write about that in the book, she had these, these amazing abilities that were documented. And so it didn't surprise me when she was the one who was showing up most of the time, because perhaps she did have a, an ability to communicate with me. Right. It, in a way, it was like a guiding voice for you. It was. It helped really you was. through some of those really scary and dark times. Can you talk a little bit about like what that was like internally when you were really in the depths of this and you were risking your life for some of these drug deals and yeah. Where were you? What was that like for you? Well, it's interesting because as you can imagine, I put myself into a lot of very dangerous situations. I was carrying a gun. Flynn, who was my friend, had a gun. We were delivering to people that had guns. There are a few incidents, instances in the book where I have machine guns pointed at me. And Certainly, there was a lot of fear there. But interestingly enough, because I was with Flynn and he was somebody who was venerated in the neighborhood, I felt protected. Even though guns were pointed at me, I felt as though I was safe. And I don't know, call it blind faith. But um, it was the moments before I met Flynn that were really the most difficult for me. It was when I was really spiraling down into the depths of my addiction and I was alone. And I was in a lot of psychological pain and a lot of confusion. And I could not stop the loop of obsession and compulsion. And I sold everything and I, you know, to, to get money to, to score. And it's almost like when I met Flynn, even though he was placing me in these dangerous situations, I felt this kinship and I felt this friendship that I so desperately wanted because I was so isolated and I was so lonely. And then he introduced me to his grandmother, who was this really wonderful spiritual figure. And 
we develop a relationship. And so they almost became my family in a way. Yeah. It goes to show how, how much we need loving people in our life, even in our darkest moments. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, without that connectivity to human, to, to the human spirit and to people that are willing to help us, I think it's very hard to get out of these cycles when we're really in the cycle of addiction. And uh, ultimately, when I did get sober, of course, it was uh, a few years later, and I needed a lot of help. I needed a lot of help from therapists, from counselors, from friends, and it took a, took a while, really took a while for me to get sober. And when I did, I had just come out of treatment, and I, I had gone to a treatment center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and one of the people who worked there suggested that I take some classes and start studying psychology. And I didn't really have anything else going on in my life at that time. And I needed a sense of purpose and I needed some direction. And so on a whim, I just filled out an application while I was in rehab and was accepted to a school of psychology in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it was, it was really starting over for me. I feel like I've had these two different lives. And at that time, my family had completely really removed themselves from me. And so I was on my own, both emotionally and, and financially. And so I got this, uh, I remember I got out of treatment and it was the dead of winter in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And it was about zero degrees and I didn't have a winter coat and I didn't have proper shoes and there was snow on the ground. And I found this small, this small apartment that cost $300 a month that came with an old rickety 10-speed bike. And so for the first few months in Santa Fe, I was riding around on this bike that was falling apart through these snow drifts, trying to find a job, uh, which ultimately I did. I found a job as a waiter and I worked two jobs and started going to school. And that was really the beginning of this new part of my life, which was one where I didn't have a lot, but I really was driven by this sense of excitement and passion to learn. And uh, ultimately, I I ended up spending the next 10 years in school. I um, took out student loans, and I worked two, three jobs during the whole time. And uh, at the end of 10 years, earned my PhD in psychology. And that's what I do now. I'm a psychologist here in Los Angeles. And I have a private practice. I've worked in many of the treatment facilities up in Malibu and in Hollywood. And uh, I get to really try and give back and, and demonstrate to people through my story that no matter how far they've fallen down, there's always a way through. And there's always a way to, to have a better life. So in that moment of when you started that, that recovery journey, it sounds like you had some people in your life that could point the way for you or could, you know, these therapists, these, yes. these treatment centers that could give you some guidance, yes, give you purpose that you could use that energy in a way that I guess, you know, rebuilds that sense of self, that, that value that you have something to give back. Well, I think, you know, when I, when I work with people that are in addictive cycles now, I, often talk about this, the importance of having some kind of 
purpose in life. For some people, it's, you know, my purpose is just staying sober and I go to three or four meetings a day and that's fine. But for me, I really needed something to fill my day with and something that I could think about that was going to build my life in a positive way. And the therapists, you know, the, the treatment center in Santa Fe was non-traditional. And so there were all of these kind of adjunct experimental therapies that we're doing, that we're doing. And we had, you know, Native American um, fire ceremonies and, and we did sweat lodges and people talked with a talking stick. And it was really interesting to me. And I thought, um, this is a, a form of spirituality. And I feel like having a sense of purpose and also incorporating spirituality into your life are two really important components, at least for me and I know for many others, to finding your way through the early stages of recovery and getting sober. And um, But there were wonderfully inspirational therapists there. There was one man who was a Vietnam vet who became my primary therapist, and he really changed my life. And it's because of his influence uh, and his dedication and his generosity that I really decided that I wanted to become uh, a psychologist. So he really made a, a, an incredibly positive in, impact on my life. That's amazing. And, and what, what a great story to be able to, to hear that, that you were able to find that person who could be what you needed in those moments and could help you walk through that. One question I also had was, in a way, I think you say somewhere near the end of the book that you also had to go back to your own past trauma, you know, getting sober, you had to look at how your own history built this thing. Yes, absolutely. I think that trauma is really on the forefront of modern psychology. People talk about trauma in different ways than they used to. And trauma really can be emotional trauma. It can be psychological trauma. And although I was never in the more traditional sense, didn't experience physical trauma or sexual trauma, I was very emotionally traumatized. And I had to go back and revisit those times in my life when I was younger and try and make some sense of them and try to ultimately recognize my own strength in those situations. And that was instrumental for me, is to not think of myself as a victim, but think of myself as somebody who was trying to survive. And then as I continued in the process of, of getting better, the really the most important thing was this idea of forgiveness. And I had to forgive my mother and father and all of those other people that I had felt, you know, these angry feelings towards. And I also had to forgive myself for all of the choices that I had made and all of the situations that I had put myself in and all of the deception and, and lying that comes with being an addict. And it was really this piece of forgiveness that finally set me free. And when I really forgave them and I, when I really forgave myself, I felt that energy of addiction really started to leave my psyche and leave my body. And it was this sort of magical process that, um, that I advocate very strongly today that, um, 
try and find that forgiveness in your heart. It's a very divine process. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to be kind to yourself as, as you do that yes. to, to nurture yourself through those, those moments of, of, yeah, forgiving ourselves for the things that we've done in the past mm-hmm. that uh, go against our own values, go against our own code. Yeah. That's right. Don't have shame because shame really has no place in, in you. And guilt, those are not qualities that we were born with, right? Those are qualities that we, emotions that we collected along the way. And try and get back to your baseline of love and generosity and beauty and appreciation. And those, I think, are the more spiritual qualities that we come into the world with. And those are really the the qualities that are the essence of our soul. And... Addiction is a very human experience. It's not a spiritual one. But the process of getting sober can be incredibly spiritual. And it's really about connecting back to that authentic part of you. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about what made you decide to write this book? And how long did it take you? And and tell me a little bit about the journey of writing it. Well, it was... It's been... Over 17 years since I had the experiences in Ghost Town. And I knew that I needed some separation from the experiences before I wrote the book. And I felt, always felt that this is such a unique story. And it's a story that I I want to tell at some point in my life. Because not only is it compelling, but it also has the ability to really help other people. And I began writing in about 2015, I began writing some articles for a site called Goop, uh, which is Gwyneth Paltrow's lifestyle site. And, And a lot of doctors and psychologists and therapists write articles. And I started to write about different non traditional topics. And, and I was getting a very positive response. And it was through that writing that I really gained confidence and I reached a tipping point and finally said, you know, I can do this. I can sit down and I can tell my story. And so at the time I had a a newborn daughter and life was pretty busy, but I carved out four hours a day, three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday from nine to one. And I said, I'm going to set a goal for myself and I'm going to write two pages every time I come out to this office. And so, and that's what really was uh, vital for me is saying, I'm going to set small goals for myself. And at the end of the week, I'm going to have a certain number of pages. The story just really flowed out of me because it was my own story. I worked with an editor while I was doing it, who I had found through uh, some of the folks at Goop that I was working with, they recommended a woman who was fantastic. And we worked together and bounced ideas off each other. And if you are writing a book, I would recommend getting an editor because it's just, uh, it it can be very, very helpful. And then I didn't have an agent. So I did the traditional, went the traditional route of sending the manuscript out to about 50 different agents. And fortunately, a few of them said yes. And then, of course, we took it out to publishers, and there was a lot of rejection, which there always is in this industry. And finally, a a great publisher, HCI, 
who is distributed by Simon & Schuster. They came on board and uh, we released the book a few weeks ago. And the process of writing it for me was really cathartic. It was really therapeutic. It was, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed every moment of it. I thought to myself, you know, I would, I would write a chapter and then I would leave it, maybe revisit it a few months later. And I was very engrossed by my own writing. <laughs> and I thought, okay, well, hopefully this will be impactful for others too. But um, it was, a, it was a, a really good, positive experience for me. And I am in the process of writing my second book now. And, wow. Uh, which is also about addiction. Right. So that one will hopefully be out at some point next year. And I imagine just seeing it published and seeing your story out there and talking about it in a way, I, I would imagine, in some some kind of surreal experience. It's really and, surreal. It really is. Because as I'm talking to you here and then also understanding you in the book, it's wow, what what a what a what a difference and and yeah. And what a dichotomy of those two things. Well, I know, I know. It's, uh, as I said before, I feel like I've lived two lives. And, and of course, I'm not ashamed of that one at all. But it feels like a different, whole different life for me. And it is surreal to see the book on the shelf. And I was fortunate enough to be in New York City before the um, COVID-19 really hit. And I... Uh, did a reading at the Strand Bookstore, which unfortunately has closed down, you know, because of the, yeah, a lot of small yeah. businesses are closing down, but I got to be up in the rare books room and do a reading in front of a, a big audience. And I just thought to myself, wow, this is uh, really one of the, the pinnacles of my life. This is one of the greatest achievements. Uh, and I'm, I'm really proud of myself and it feels really good. That's awesome. And your story, like what you're sharing right now, I think for people who are in the midst of addiction, to know that you can get to this space where you can look back on it and not be filled with all of the shame and, and guilt and self-loathing that you may currently experience as you're in it, that there is a way out and yeah. that you can't look back and talk about it it's and it'll be okay. and you can be kind to yourself. It's totally true. You know, I had one of my one of my friends in New York said to me at a certain point, and he had read an early draft of the book, and he said, "Do you really want to get this? Have this be out there in the world as your legacy? Do you really want your children to be reading this about you, about you know how far you fell down, and the fact that you were homeless, and the fact that you were taking these drugs?" And I had to think about it for a beat, and ultimately came to the decision of. Absolutely. I want people to know this story. I want people to read this story. I'm proud of who I have become. And this was a, an experience in my life. And I think the experience in and of itself can demonstrate that, as you just so eloquently put, no matter how far you fall down, when you think that the odds are insurmountable and that you can't get through, there always is a way because the human spirit is very strong and there is a way through and, um, and you, there's a, there is the potential for a wonderful life on the other side and one that is free of shame and guilt of the past. And 
you know, I, in sobriety, I reconnected with a woman from my past and the two of us got married and we have two children together now. And I live in Topanga Canyon, which is this uh, beautiful mountain community overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And, and I just, I have more than I could ever have hoped for. And, um, and that is possible for all of you, all of you that are out there. If you, if you really want to get through this, you can. I'm living proof of that. And what I would say is find something that you really love to do. Find a sense of purpose and forgive yourself. And those are the two cornerstones of my recovery that I still practice every day. You know, when I make a mistake now and I, I sort of laugh at myself <laughs> and, then, and then I forgive myself because I'm a human and uh, we all are. We're flawed and, you know, we have um, situations that continually we're trying to change or rectify in our lives. So don't be hard on yourself. Be kind to yourself. Be loving towards yourself and try and try and do your best. Yeah. And, and get support. Go get support. Get support. Even if it's just a friend, you know, if you're ashamed about what's going on in your life and you know that one person that has always been there for you, just reach out to that one person. Right. That's all it takes. And that's the first step always is to, to ask for help. Definitely. Oh, Carter, thank you so much for coming on and, um, you know, sharing your story on the Addicted Mind podcast. I appreciate it. It is so filled with hope. I would definitely recommend people pick up your book, Lost in Ghost Town. I think you can find it on Amazon. You can go to Audible. It's a great book and I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much for coming on. How can people uh, find you if they if they want to? Uh... Yeah, sure. Well, what I would say is, um, of course, uh, the book is called Lost in Ghost Town. You can find it on Amazon and Audible and Kindle. If you want a hard copy of the book, Amazon right now, there's a bit of a delay in their shipping. So you can always go to barnesandnobles.com too. And I think they'll get the book to you in like three days oh, awesome. as opposed to three weeks on Amazon because of these, um, these times that we're in now. Right. But, um, so that's a way uh, to, to expedite the delivery. My website, you can always find me, is just www.carterstout.com. And that's C-A-R-D as in David, E-R-S-T-O-U-T, carterstout.com. You can read about my practice and what I do, and please reach out to me. I love, if you read the book, I I would love to hear your thoughts and, and your opinion of it. And uh, you can also ask me any questions about things that you're going through. I'm always here for anyone in need. Well, thank you, Carter. Thank you so much for coming on to The Addicted Mind. I appreciate it. Um, So so great to be here and and, uh, have a wonderful day. You too. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addictive Mind podcast. As usual, the show notes will be at theaddictivemind.com forward slash 94. If you are enjoying the Addictive Mind podcast, think about rating and reviewing us in iTunes. That really does help or share the podcast with a friend and join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and type in the Addictive Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everybody, please be safe socially distance and share hope. 
Have a wonderful week and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.